A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join me today. So apparently there was an inauguration that took place earlier today. I know, actually, seems to be what uh, most everybody's focusing on. I got to tell you, I, I've been a little concerned about some of the people who I know. Just it's it's not that I'm going out there. I'm, I'm not looking for it's something wrong. But I, when someone looks down, you know, if, if you see a friend and they're noticeably downcast, do you not say something? I mean, do you, do you not? Wouldn't a good friend say, hey, everything OK? And, uh, you know, in some cases, I've had to ask, mostly people have been very willing to volunteer. And, and just I've heard a number of people in the last two days say, I just feel sick. I feel empty. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm just down. And, and I wish I could tell you that, well, you know, I'm I'm immune from these sort of things. These these lesser considerations. Um, no, I, I face it, too. But what I'm trying to do above all is make sense of what's going on around us. And, and here, these are just a few thoughts that I had earlier this morning, especially as I look at the, the joy, the rapture that some people are having, you know, with the idea that, you know, the occupant at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue has changed. And now my whole world is different. And there are, there are people who are very sad. I mean, I don't know what to tell those of you who believed, you know, in 4D chess. Don't trust politicians. Don't. Even the ones you like, don't. It's it's just it's not a it's not a trustworthy place to be. Here's what I was thinking. I, I wonder how many people who've been miserable because a particular politician was in a particular office. And I wonder if they're going to be surprised when they discover that they're still miserable, even after that politician is gone. Oh, by the way, that doesn't make that politician a saint. I'm just saying that. They were probably miserable to begin with because their 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 happiness or lack thereof appears to be connected to some externality. Like he's in this office. She's on that TV show. And I understand people get they get angry, they get caught up in this. Sometimes you have to wonder though, is it is it worth it? I see a lot of broken hearts around me right now. And I see a lot of people who have become um painfully educated on the danger of focusing on personality over principles. There are a lot of, you know, magnetic personalities out there that, uh, that pull people in and win their trust and win their confidence and not a hair out of place and just a perfect smile. And, 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 and they speak flattering words. They know how to say things that are going to sound good in your ears. And I mean, like literally no, for your ears, this is the message I'm going to want to keep uh, mirroring back at you. That's the nature of politics. Talk to anybody who has run for office. Now, I don't care if it's, you know, the, the, the city level, county, state or federal level. Although it's much more intense, the higher up you go, the more you're going to see that uh, that it's possible to simply be unelectable. Because you have 
principles because you have a conscience. You've got to be willing to be, uh, how, how would they say, a little more flexible if you want to play the game. Which means politicians and people who, who put their faith in, in a you know, political savior, um, they shouldn't be surprised. Politicians, for the, most, for the most part, you might find a few exceptions, but for the most part, they are individuals who are willing to say anything to get elected. And then they're willing to do anything to keep their campaign funding flowing. That's, I mean, the, I'm not trying to, to question everybody's motives, but I'm just saying the, the amorality that you find there, it, it shouldn't be surprising. If you're willing to do anything or say anything to keep that grasp on power, to keep that grasp on funding, yeah, you probably shouldn't be too surprised if someone's sense of right and wrong goes out the window. Personally, I think Trump learned that in in a really hard way. How many people that he had close to him, if he had anybody really close to him during his time in, in Washington? Could he really trust very many of them? There, there are a few. I mean, I'm aware of some who have worked with him who came away saying, yeah, this was a great experience. There are others, you know, who've, who've you know, I've got to tell all. I'm going to I'm going to tell it all. But for the most part. I just I don't know the, the 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 hatred that's being projected toward him right now on the part of the political class. Um, this is just, you know, my my armchair psychiatrist, uh, you know, armchair quarterback in it here. But it doesn't seem healthy. Not for them, not for him, not for not for the republic. Sorry, I'm not calling it a democracy, even though everybody else is today. But uh, but I'm going to I'm going to stand the line on this one. We live in a republic, and a republic is not the same as a democracy, for good reason. Because a democracy in its purest form is simply, hey, what the majority wants, the majority gets. In a republic, the majority may want something, and they may really righteously want something, but if it runs contrary to the rights of anybody, they can't do it. That's why legitimate government is supposed to be limited to protecting natural rights, not supposed to be a weapon that you use to punish your political opponents. And this is something, this is a lesson that I think we're all going to be learning shortly. Why does this matter? Well, stand by. I think we're about to find out. This much I do know. History bears out this truth along with a lot of others, but this one especially. Unchecked power invites abuse people who don't know their history are going to be very slow to appreciate that this is true and places where where power was left unchecked uh, became very dangerous places and i understand why people don't want to believe this and they especially don't want to believe that can be the direction that, that we are headed as a country i believe it's true though and i think somebody needs to say it sooner than later None of us wants to believe bad news, right? None of us wants to receive bad news. But we live in a time where, look, if you want to face reality, you had better be willing to face some unpleasant truths along with that. And this is, this is not that everything is gloom and doom, but just at the very least, human nature really hasn't changed. I have a friend I follow on Facebook. His name is Michael Smith. Michael has a very informed, um, solid take 
on so much of what is going on. And I, when he posts something, I like to I like to stop and see what's he talking about here. And he made a point in a post that he made on Facebook earlier earlier today. This is just an excerpt. But when you hear people planning, you know, very Orwellian central controlling, I must dominate everything. There can be no dissent. No one can question what I'm doing. That should set off some alarms. Michael Smith says it's not so much that Orwell, Huxley, Rand, Hayek, or even Nikita Khrushchev were so prescient. It's this. It's just that humans and collectivism are so predictable. The names may change, but the faces remain the same. And the same contradictions are always there. Tell me if this sounds familiar. To end discrimination, we must discriminate even more. Free speech must be controlled for safety. Dissent is always treasonous. Freedom means being controlled because you don't really know. You don't know what really is good for you. Some animals are more equal than others and four legs good, two legs bad. (laughs) Do you see the point he's making? What is playing at what's being laid out before us is nothing new. And we've, it's, we've been warned about it in literature. The history warns us about it. So if you're feeling discouraged, look, first of all, you're not alone. But there are a couple things I'd like you to keep in mind. As the next chapter of American history unfolds, there is a lot that is simply going to be beyond our control. And the sooner we turn our focus to the areas where we have genuine influence, the happier we're all going to be. Otherwise, you are going to agonize about things over which you have no control and no influence. Now, if you're not familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I would recommend him because I think you'll find a lot of strength and a lot of clarity in his writing. And something he points out in the Gulag Archipelago is that the line that divides good from evil doesn't run in between political parties. It doesn't run between ideologies. It goes right through the center of every human heart. Now, think about what that means. That means our individual decisions play a major role in reducing the amount of evil in this world. And it's not by conquering or subjugating others, but because we do not allow it to enter the world through us. In other words, your influence is way more important than you think. Use it wisely. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. Our great sponsors include Alta Bank, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, and also Monticello College. Uh, my friend John Staples, you can contact him at Alta Bank. Um, I don't know what interest rates are right now. I know a lot of people are quoting him because they're like, okay, remember, remember when Biden took office, this is how low interest rates were. I know they're ridiculously low. I know that if you are, if you're making a move, buying a home, maybe refinancing your existing mortgage, the time to, to move on it would be while these rates are super, super low. So contact John. You'll find the contact information in the link at the end of my show notes. You can find those at the Brian Hyde show.com. All right. 
Now, I have a couple of things I want to share with you that I, I hope are productive. Uh, the one thing I am trying so hard not to do is to to feed the attitude of, oh, you know, it's despair and we've, you know, things, things are, it's a, it's a dark winter. I think, wait, I think the new president actually was the one talking about that. But at any rate, you probably have enough dark clouds overhead. I don't want to add to them. But I'm going to suggest one of the things that, to, that we need to have clear in our minds, assuming that we see, uh, how can I put this nicely, a departure from what legitimate government ought to be doing into, um, I don't know, into a, a type of government in which uh, everything that is not forbidden is mandatory. I, that seems to be the direction uh, that we're headed. So I want to share with you some useful information. First of all, there's an excellent article from Gary Gallas. I came across this at the uh, Mises.org website. Why governments want more centralization and less federalism. Now, I got to tell you, for a long time, I, I really held out hope that uh, the states would recognize they have they have primacy over the federal government in most areas, most areas. All the Constitution ever did was take the expressed will of the states and the people that make up those states and call into existence a federal government. Federal in that its, its powers were very limited at home. And the only place where they really were, were supreme or where the international interests of all of those various states aligned. But otherwise, states, states were, I, I don't know who called them, little laboratories of, of freedom. But they could pretty much do as they wished to, to make things work. And so it wasn't uncommon. You know, some states, Nevada's, as far as I know, has always allowed gambling. Some states wouldn't even allow you to, you know, buy beer after a certain time. Now, oh, come to think of it now, there's there's a lot of them. But you, you get the picture. From state to state, things could be different. And if a person really wanted to, you know, to make a change, if they, if they wanted to vote with their feet, they had that option of doing so. But when power is more centralized, when, when the states are merely administrative offices to this all-powerful, centralized national government, you know, they become dependent on those federal funds. They become dependent on, you know, some master from far off in Washington telling them this is the way things need to be. Anyway, I want you to get Gary Gallas' take on this. He says, federalism, which Felix Morley called the distinctively American contribution to political art, arose from our founders' desire to limit government's ability to harm its citizens. Now, the Constitution restricted non-delegated powers to states and individuals in their private arrangements. Empowering citizens by allowing earlier escape from abusive government by voting with their feet for jurisdictions with less hostile governance. And that set a tighter limit on government ability to impose burdens that outweighed benefits. Now, he says government inefficiency and redistribution beyond what citizens support, which often overlap as inefficiency is often redistribution toward unionized government workers, but it's a ubiquitous source of burdens. And he says the more easily one can leave a jurisdiction, the smaller the net burden its government can impose without driving citizens away. So it's generally less costly to leave an unattractive local government than a similarly repellent state, and less costly to leave a state than the country. Therefore, the more local the government involved, the smaller the net burdens it can successfully impose on citizens, and consequently, the less efficiency, less inefficiency and fewer unsupported policies it can finance. I mean, that makes sense, right? 
Unfortunately, he says our founders' federalism has become honored primarily in the breach. And attempts to evade the constraints it imposes can explain several current political realities. He says it's behind both parties' centralization flip-flops such as we are currently beginning to experience. The majority wants to win more, so regardless of previous rhetoric, they want to centralize power at a higher government level. That allows more to be extracted from opponents' constituents, increasing the booty the majority gets to divvy up. In contrast, the minority wants to lose less, so they shift toward favoring federalism to better dodge the burdens opponents can impose on them. So when control shifts, positions reverse. In other words, the Democrats' support for cities and states offering sanctuary from federal policies will predictably decline. But because the in-party dominates, whoever's in at the moment, federalism suffers ongoing erosion. Now, he says evading federalism has caused Washington's growth into the dominant senior partner in American government. Federal grants have increasingly financed state and local government with federal aid becoming the largest source of state revenue in 2009. By moving financing upward into the jurisdiction hardest to leave, citizens' ability to dodge burdens is reduced, expanding the ability to maintain policies citizens dislike. Increasingly centralized control also substitutes national determination for states as laboratories of democracy, as when threats to withhold federal trust fund dollars led to the implementation of a national 55-mile-per-hour speed limit and later a lower limit for drunk driving, bribing states into compliance with taxes raised from their own citizens. Gary Gallus says attempting to ease the constraints on government policies which exist, which easier exit imposes, also explains the campaigns to consolidate local governance into regional governance. These campaigns reduce local government competition for citizens, typically behind the guise of supposedly improved administration or efficiency, and therefore similarly reduce the necessity for governments to do what their citizens want. Further, he says that the possibility of citizens exiting a jurisdiction, or the possibility of them exiting a jurisdiction, explains the political focus on property taxation at the state and local level. Even though citizens can leave, they cannot avoid the burdens of jurisdictions imposing abusive property taxation. So even if someone sells their property, moves away, the present value of the difference between the expected future taxes and benefits will be capitalized into their property's sales price, leaving them still bearing the burden. So property taxes, because they're the hardest to dodge, are the preferred funding source for state and local spending citizens, local spending rather, that citizens dislike. He says that's also the underlying notion for state and local politicians antipathy to property tax limitations, which undermine police, political elites power to do what they want rather than serving their citizens. That's why California's Proposition 13 has been blamed for everything and targeted by many assaults since its passage, such as 2020's failed uh, split role initiative and with more on the way. He says America's founders did not envision the federal government as the domineering senior partner in almost everything. What was once best described as sovereign states united solely for specified joint purposes has been largely eviscerated, serving us badly, while further complicating the political machinations behind the disservice. And instead of moving even further toward centralization, we would gain by returning to a federal government whose delegated powers are few and defined, exercised principally on external objects, in James Madison's words. 
and where reserved powers include all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people. Of course, even then, Gary Gallo says citizens will still have to fight ongoing battles to escape growing property tax-financed abuses from their governments that are closer to home. That's pretty cool stuff. And I think he's right on the money, too. I will have a link to this in the show notes. Check him out for yourself, thebrianhydeshow.com. We will take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, so I'm trying to find some useful information, and and, uh, I'm going to... I'm going to next share with you an article that uh, came up on my uh, my email from the Foundation for Economic Education. If you have not subscribed to fee.org, you are missing out because every day they will send you, oh, it's it's easily a dozen or more articles, well-written, well-researched articles about economics, politics, culture, history, education. And, you know, the founder of... Uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, Leonard E. Reed. I, the more I delve, I never knew this guy during the time he was alive. Um, I only was acquainted with his writings after the fact, but holy cow, what a gift this guy had for helping to, uh, I don't know how to put this. I mean, I, I, I want to I describe accurately what he did, but he basically, um, how to be a, a, an influential citizen how to be somebody who is is making the right kind of difference being a difference maker and there's an there's this illustration here the article is actually written by uh, Cody Jensen a compilation of 14 Leonard Reed quotes from pattern for revolt now apparently in pattern for revolt what Leonard Reed did was he laid out what a more principled candidate might say through a series of fictional campaign speeches culminating in an inaugural address And this is how Cody Jensen introduces these quotes. The year was 1948. The New Deal dynasty of Franklin Roosevelt had spent four elections and passed on to his successor, Harry Truman. Two years earlier, amidst this backdrop, Leonard Reed had started the Foundation for Economic Education. Perhaps this was because he saw a few others willing to stand for the classical liberal ideas he believed in. As he saw it, the two previous the previous two Republican nominees for president, Wendell Wilkie and Thomas Dewey, had attempted to co-opt the New Deal rather than refute it. Reed wrote of Wilkie, quote, Then something seemed to happen to his demeanor. For the first time, it became obvious that he was thinking in terms of winning the election. It became clear that he was thinking of methods for capturing votes. He seemed to think less and less of being right. The voice of expediency persuaded him to say in his speech of acceptance that he believed in the Fair Labor Standards Act, a position at complete odds with liberal tenets. He went more and more down the New Deal path, as did Governor Dewey after him. Not because either one necessarily believed in that course, 
but because they thought they mu- they they must have thought it was the way to defeat the Roosevelt party and secure the office for themselves and their party. They acted from motives of expediency rather than moral convictions. Yet this action proved to be not even expedient. By it, they did not succeed. End quote. Now, in Pattern for Revolt, Reed laid out what a more principled candidate might say through a series of fictional campaign speeches. And Cody says, I don't think Leonard Reed would mind if Joe Biden wanted to incorporate some of these lines into his own inaugural address. Number one, the mere changing of parties or personalities is not important. The transfer of power from one party to the other is important only if the ascending party has principles, which it is important to substitute for the principles of the party in power. Nothing else matters. Number two, choosing among numerous aspirants to office who vie with each other as sponsors of public housing, socialized medicine, the nationalization of education, and a host of other socialistic items is like choosing between Tweedledee and Tweedledum. That is not an election in any significant sense, that is, not in any ideal sense, but only in an unimportant personality sense. Number three, men in government, therefore, should be those who aim at making government as unnecessary as possible. Contraction, not expansion, should be the aim. Number four, freedom is an assertion of man's God-given free will, a resurrection of man from deadening arbitrary authority, whether this authority be exercised by democratic majorities through the instrumentality of the state or by oppressive men in anarchy. Authority of man of men over man exists in the presence of error and ignorance, folly and wrongdoing. I think I may print that one out and put that one up on my on my wall. Number five, Leonard Reed wrote, we do not need to care who is elected to the presidency if we carry our ideas. What could I do in office on behalf of liberalism if the people's ideas were those of slaves? On the other hand, he says, what will our collectivist opponents be able to do in extending their authority if the people subscribe to the principle of liberty? Number six, in every field where arbitrary authority is imposed, we shall inquire how it may be removed and replaced by reliance on the initiative and enterprise of individual citizens. We must give to the art of self-government its American renaissance. Man, I'd be happy to find a candidate that even began to speak this kind of language. Number seven, how do people reason in order to arrive at the conclusion that we can be enriched by paying government a huge overhead to take from all of us and give to some of us or even to most of us? This merry-go-round in economic thinking is too confusing for me. Number eight, if the booty from the public looting is not taken away from those who are getting it. Those who are now without this booty will press their demands beyond the point of governmental resistance. The choice is only one of going on with the filthy business or getting out of it entirely. Our country cannot endure half robbers and half robbed. That's kind of politically incorrect, too, but there's a part of me that likes it. Number nine, coercion of which government and the laws of God should have a monopoly has its place solely as a restraining force for the protection of the individual citizen's life, liberty, and property. Use of coercion to relieve the individual of responsibility, to direct his activities, and to dispose of his property, which is the self-support of life, destroys that which makes life worth living, and even life itself. 
Number 10, it is one thing to limit governmental coercion, which is police force, to the suppression of evil. It is quite the opposite to extend it for the doing of good. Coercion cannot do good. It can stifle evil. Coercion stifles whatever it touches, be it good or evil. Oh, that's a good lesson. Number 11. You ask me then, how do I propose to deal with those who are now in distress? The answer is simple. I have no proposal for dealing with them through government. Under no circumstances is it a federal job. It cannot be properly done at that level by me or by Congress. Here's quote number 12. To assume that the chief executive is general manager, a common error, is to betray the ways of freedom and to deny the concept of limited powers upon which this government was founded. The people, the individual American citizens, are their own managers. Can you imagine a politician saying that in this day and age? This is what I mean. You can't get elected. And yet these are, these are truthful principles that uh, Leonard Reed is spelling out here. Two more quick quotes. Properly, this office only has the function of executing the policing details which the Congress finds it necessary to impose and of managing such federal services as the, as the Congress has, wisely or unwisely, thought it expedient to provide. And number 14, but of this be certain, I shall stick to my own job and will avoid assuming any responsibilities not clearly mine. The enactment or repeal of legislation, for instance, is the function solely of Congress. Whether the job is done well or badly is the responsibility of your representatives in Congress, not of your president. My job is to administer the government as it is, this and nothing else. Cody Jensen says, now, no doubt it would be difficult for anyone to live up to those words, let alone a president. But surely it's easier to aspire to principles that one boldly lays out for all to see. And then ends with hopefully some politicians will take a lesson from Leonard Reed and take a stand for freedom. Look, you don't have to study yourself into, you know, a coma. But you should probably know something about history. Know a little something about our form of government. Charlie Reese, one of my favorite writers, used to say that, you know, the dirtiest trick the founding generation ever played on us was they trusted us to remain alert and engaged in what was going on in our civic lives. In other words, we wouldn't just outsource governance to whoever happened to hold an office or an appointed, you know, office. They didn't think we'd get lazy, but we did. And that's kind of coming back to bite us right now. And by the way, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, so I'm, I'm not looking down from my ivory tower. Nope. Nope. I think I've, I've, I've made similar mistakes that a lot of people did. How, how could we possibly let it get to this point? I still maintain one of my biggest mistakes was I put so much faith in uh, political solutions that I really didn't stop and think... Is this something that requires a political solution? I actually heard Neil Larson say that the other morning on his show. And I thought, yeah, what if? What if the solutions we're looking for really aren't political in nature? What then? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Thanks for hanging with me thus far. <laughs> I am so glad that uh, that you've stuck around. I have a couple of questions I want to pose. And, you know, this, this is not so much to, you know, blow your mind as just get you thinking on a slightly different wavelength, right? Everybody's dialed into here's what's happening politically and, you know, culturally, socially, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. But let's talk about for just a moment, what does it mean to be a difference maker? What's the difference between somebody who wants to make a difference and somebody who is just, you know, along for the ride? You know, maybe they won't complain, maybe they will, but they really aren't intent on making a difference. I mean, look, no matter how you slice any political contest, you're going to see a lot of people wasting time and energy trying to fix blame for various dilemmas or conflicts or things that are playing out in front of us. And this is what politicians and pundits, pundits rather, are best at. They incite silly squabbles that pit people against one another. And, of course, it doesn't help that, you know, with the help of the media, blaming others is kind of a, a national pastime. And people have been led to believe that, look, if we just chant louder, if we just clap harder, if we post more on social media, this is going to lead to effective change. Now, if you're a difference maker, you know, no, that's that's not how it works. And it's not because those committed to making a difference think they're better than the masses. I mean, after all, humility is an essential part of genuine leadership. But the people who ultimately have impact for good in this world are people who have found a moral clarity that they value above their own comfort and personal advantage. Take a second and figure out and think about what that means. There's a moral clarity that they value above whatever else is going right in their life. You know, it's like this. This is the holy grail to them. And it starts with the personal recognition that there's an intolerable gap between the way things are and the way they could be. And it's not narcissistic, you know, I just want to go impose what I know is best on others. It's more of a realization that every one of us has a conscious decision that we can either stand for what we hold true or remain silent so we don't risk disapproval. And I think we may be approaching one of those times where a lot of people are going to be confronting that reality. What do I do? Do I say something or do I just, you know, shut my mouth and, and fly under the radar? Well, you're going to have to, this is a, con, this is a, a conscience-driven question that you're going to have to answer for yourself. Anybody who has stood for anything of substance at any time in their life, knows very well that when you do so, you invite the risk of pain and punishment. And as Paul Rosenberg has asked, you know, if you're not willing to suffer for your beliefs, are you a believer of any real depth? You know, we just we just celebrated, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Do you remember where he said, on some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it expedient? And then expedience comes along and asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks the question, is it right? There comes a time when one must take the position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must do it because his conscience tells him it's right. I'd say he was, uh, I'd say he was right on the money there. This means anybody who challenges the status quo can expect to be portrayed as an enemy of the system. 
and only those who've been on the receiving end of the mindless derision and ridicule dished out by people who cautiously hide out in the crowd can appreciate just how difficult standing alone can be. And as uncomfortable as it may be, it still serves a very positive purpose. Serious opposition is a powerful tool to show you where your conviction lies. It also will tell you whether or not you're having impact. In fact, you can get a very strong indication of how much impact you're having by how much flack you're receiving. Those two things are related. And it's not for people who are more attached to security and acceptance than they are to their principles. So here are six questions that any serious difference maker has to be willing to ask. Now, the good news is you get to answer this because this is according to your conscience and your priorities. First question, is there anything besides my family for which I would be willing to risk my reputation, my livelihood, my personal freedom, or my life? Number two, how bad would things have to get before I would be willing to act without permission? Number three, is it possible to make my stand while remaining socially neutral? Number four, is there anything that I could be doing at this moment with the possible exception of my family than what I am doing at this moment? Question number five, is there a line in the sand that marks the point of no return where making a stand for what I believe matters requires that I must break with normal society? And number six, if there is a role that I must play in standing up for truth as I understand it, and if so, what is that role? Now, I, I have to give credit to my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks, who, by the way, is uh, with Monticello College. You've heard that they've come aboard as a sponsor of, of uh, our program. Shannon is the guy who introduced me to this line of questioning. And again, these are six questions that anybody who really wants to make a difference has to be willing to ask. Did you notice, though? I mean, how could you not notice? Those are pretty deep questions. A simple, superficial, flippant answer is not going to cut it. But the point is, those aren't the kind of questions you're likely to hear from people who crave the perceived safety of the herd or are just anxious to reassure master that, uh, that they love them. Those kind of questions don't uh, represent the lack of introspection that's the hallmark of the opportunist. Because the people who ask those kinds of questions are people who have a greater love of their principles than they do of themselves, meaning they are willing to improve as they need to. A good test of our willingness to stand for principle is uh, whether our willingness to stand for self-principle is self-serving or not can be found in whether we're willing to boldly speak out when we're not the one who's being directly harmed. Benjamin Franklin put it this way, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. So why am I sharing this with you? I don't know. It just seemed like it seemed like a message that uh, that some could use. I think the coming year is likely going to bring with it opportunities for each one of us to act as difference makers. And I don't think that's a one size fits all role where we're all going to be doing this, you know, in this political realm or this, you know, in the teaching realm, whatever. I don't know. All I know is I see some pretty interesting challenges ahead. 
And I think that we are going to all be given opportunities to act as difference makers because of some of the difficult things that may be ahead of us. And this is what I'm asking of you. And before I ask this, I'm going to tell you, this is nothing I'm not willing to ask of myself. Instead of walking away from your principles, I'm asking you to embrace your unique role. Ask yourself the questions, and I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Ask yourself the questions that a difference maker has to ask. And then you decide. You know, it's 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 totally up to you. I don't want you to I don't want you to feel guilt. I don't want you to feel shamed. I want you to feel opportunity. Here's here's the way I see things as as they lay right now. This is the lay of the land. Right now there are a lot of people shell-shocked who have put a lot of faith in, in the political process and, and particularly in a political hero that they felt was, was going to do it. There's still some holding out. You know, the, the, the trap just hasn't been sprung yet. But a lot of people are questioning for the first time, what is of substance? What can I hang my hat on? And they need the influence of people like you and me to show them that there there are more productive ways with which we can approach the various problems we're trying to solve. The free market can bring so many solutions that coercion can't. Personal conscience has to be sacred. It cannot be subject to government approval. Personal liberty matters it does private property rights matter these are things we can't lose track of in the bigger scheme of things they actually matter because that's how we that's how we become better people that's how we realize our potential but central planning and the idea that somebody somewhere knows better than you how to make all of those decisions and and build a fit life for you no No, thank you. There's a better way. And that's what we're here to learn about. This is The Brian Hyde Show.